Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. Bonafide hustler <laughs> slash street pharmacist, DJ to entrepreneur, tech executive. This is actually when I met him, father and husband. Matt grew up in Huntington Beach and he moved to LA in 2005 and struggled with alcoholism and addiction most of his life. He got sober in 2016 and uh, he spent time working on various projects and businesses, hanging out with his wife and two daughters. And in the spare, in his spare time, he goes surfing, um, trims bonsai trees. I don't know if that, that if that's the way you say it and, uh, yeah. rides, rides motorcycles. So, um, Matt is my friend, but I have him on my podcast because he has an amazing story. Um, you know, we have a lot in common, Matt. We both grew up in LA, right? Uh, and and I want to I want to know because I know broad strokes about your upbringing, but I want to know um, details, and we'll kind of get into because I think you have a I'm going to say a beautiful character arc, right? From 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 where you were brought up, where you started, uh, I think streets of Huntington Beach, Long Beach, to um, where you are now. And some may argue you should not be alive, <laughs> right? <Sorry. laughs> and uh, whenever you hear that, there's obviously an interesting story there. And then we have other things in common, like um, fatherhood. We're both entrepreneurs, you know, um, all of that. So let's start with um, your upbringing. All right. Where, yeah. Where were I, you raised? I was born in Minnesota. I, I lived in Chicago till I was eight. Um, and then I moved to Orange County. Mm -hmm. and moved into the Fountain Valley and Huntington Beach area and grew up there until um till college age um you know I left and and moved to all, all around there you know Huntington Long Beach um Costa Mesa Newport mm -hmm. area all all around kind of you know the southern orange countyish area and and up to to LA and then then moved up to to Los Angeles in you know 2004 I believe. But so growing most, up, were you guys? Uh, did you guys have money? Did you not have money? It was you and your yeah, brother. It, I I had an older half brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. Mm -hmm. And we we had money. We were definitely like upper middle class. Um, then my parents got divorced. Mm. My my older half brother, who was not my dad's kid went to go live with my mom and we lived with my dad my brother and sister and i and my dad had a bit of a he was manic depressing he had a, a, a slow decline and um fell into like a deep depression didn't by the time i was in sixth or seventh grade he hadn't left the house in more than a year and and oh. all through high school just basically barely ever left the house you know i was um and we so we went to him driving a porsche in chicago to mm. you know full food stamps and my and my utilities being cut off you know every every month what what um, what, what was the catalyst to his depression 
uh, you said it was kind of a slow build, but what yeah, did something well, happen or when, no? When my parents got divorced, my mom didn't want to have to pay any child support, but mm-hmm. she she got half of house with my father had already paid off so he had to take a, another you know loan out to pay her half of what that house was worth and then Huntington Beach we had this giant five bedroom you know house in, in Orange County and so um it it started financially and just the the time you know raising mm-hmm. three kids by himself and then my mom yeah. you know we were spending every other weekend with her and she married this really terrible alcoholic and she was an alcoholic. And then mm. one day she, you know, we were supposed to go spend, uh, it was a Easter weekend. We just went over to her house and my dad, uh, you know, dropped us off and we got up to her apartment and there was no furniture in it and she was just mm. gone. So she just completely disappeared for a couple of years. Jeez. And then, uh, you know, called us and, and told us she was living in Florida and, you know, I've, I've spoken to her twice since I was like 16 or 17. Wow. You know, what's interesting about the story is, uh, cause I worked, uh, with, uh, teenagers and most of their parents were either separated or, or gone. It's usually the dad that's bounces. And then the kids are all stuck yeah. with mom. In your case, it was flipped where dad, um, is with three kids. He had three kids, right? Or raising? Yeah, but it's not wasn't by choice. And when we went to court, my my mom made it very, you know, vocal that she did not want us to come live with her and that she didn't right. want to, to have us. And because my older brother was, I think he was seventeen at the time, and he wasn't my dad's kid, but my dad had raised him since he was four mm. or five. Mm-hmm. You know, he got to go live with my mom, and um, you know, we were were stuck. I also, you know, wasn't the easiest kid to raise. Yeah. You know, I was a little bit of a troublemaker in my Were you, were my, you angry? My were you, brother. Yeah, when you say trouble, just, what do you mean? Well, you know, I was a surfer, skater, punk rock kid that yeah. um, had absolutely no, you know, I had no rules. Like, I rode a motorcycle to school in, in seventh and eighth grade. Like, I... Wow. I I had my dad's car since I was in sixth grade. So, you know, I, I drove, you know, drove everywhere with, you know, no license, no insurance, you know, steal the car registration off some other car to put on my, you know, my dad's car. Um, I had like, you know, I could do anything I wanted, you know, like my, my dad didn't really, you know, he didn't leave the house. So, yeah. So, um, part of your dad's depression, well, because your dad was depressed and was kind of absent in that way, um, you had free range. You 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 kind of yeah. did whatever you wanted, right? And so, um, is that where you started getting into um, drugs, alcohol? You know, maybe hanging out with the 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 kids from the other side of the tracks. Yeah, it was it was. Um, you know, I I started smoking a little weed in high school, um, but I started selling weed to to pay for utilities and pay mm. for you know for food and and um you know just started slanging weed in high school as a kid uh mm-hmm. you know for for money really um and then as i got uh, older um the the folks that i was dealing with you know as just kind of small time dealer stuff with you know with drugs um 
you know, grew. And by the time I was like 20, I was, you know, trafficking, you know, hundreds of pounds a, a year and, and, uh, fell in with, um, a, a, a huge organization that, that, um, you know, kind of groomed me into, you know, a, a professional drug dealer. And so I did that for, um, till my early twenties. Did you feel at that age, cause you're so young and I can imagine, you know, uh, money coming in, there's a sense of power in that. Did you feel invincible? Did you feel? Yeah. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I had, I had started DJing and the combination of, you know, whether it was in my own head or not, you know, like lifestyle, right. People that right. I, I worked for, they went to nightclubs, they ran bands, they did two conventions. And, you know, so I, even when I very first started DJing, I was DJing for, you know, crowds of thousands of people and such. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and because of the group that I ran with, you know, I was a, a, a pretty like important person in, in my own mind, especially. And so, um, the rest of the drugs, like usage wise was really just kind of partying and, and, you know, I always had the ability to get my hands on, on whatever, but, um, I had a propensity to kind of, uh, you know, kind of like the downers and the, the, the painkiller stuff. So opiates yeah. and, and pills, you know, how did you know that, um, you were addicted how did you know, or at what point, you know, what was your bathroom moment where you realized, oh, this actually has power over me? I don't know if I have control over this. Uh, I tried to stop drinking a million times and it didn't work. And I came, I became, you know, um, fairly cognizant of the fact that I was an alcoholic in my, my very early 20s mm -hmm. um, and just kind of made terms with that. The, the drugs weren't a real serious problem. Um, the combination of the, the drugs and alcohol were always a problem. Drinking was always my number one problem, but actually in my professional years, I got into a, a motorcycle accident in 2011 and fractured my neck on the freeway and got hooked on painkillers. Mm -hmm. And, the the moment that I knew that I was like fully strung out is uh, I got some some Percocet in the street that were laced with fentanyl and then uh, ended mm. up over overdosing on on my floor at home. Wow. Wait, so, uh, were you married by then or no? Yeah, yeah, I was already married by then. So that was the so that was the bathroom moment, huh? That was that the, was that was the that was the you know there was there was probably a hundred times in my past where I'd go out on benders and I'd I'd have you know months where I used real heavily, but somehow some way I'd always be able to put everything down minus yeah. the drinking. The drinking was always a problem, but um, and I, I think it it wasn't until I was you know well and into my 30s that that actually got a full full handle hey wanted to share with you something i'm super excited about if you go to theangrytherapist.com forward slash premium you not only get 
commercial-free episodes, but also something I'm introducing called series, rotating wellness topics, but not only lessons, but what do we do with this information? How do we thread this into our life so we could change our life? Go to theangrytherapist.com forward slash premium. One of the things uh, that's kind of interesting about your story, and I just catch from like social media or maybe you, you telling me some of this stuff is uh, a lot of friends that you grew up with who are uh, roughly your age, my age, um, are no longer with us, right? Yeah, I've had um, I've had seven seven friends in the last four and a half years die of, of fentanyl overdoses. Yeah, and in the last twenty years, I, I mean, I I can't even count how many friends, you know, especially the circle I ran with, I ran with a lot of rough, you know, rough, rough people who've had their hands in drugs for a long time. And, um, yeah, a lot, lots of mainly fentanyl though, you know, I, I don't know anyone, um, around my age who have lost as many friends as you to, uh, okay. drugs or a certain lifestyle. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit, uh, it's fairly foreign to, to folks who, you know, don't have issues with, with drugs. The thing about fentanyl specifically being such a, you know, an important part of that, that story is the fact that uh, like all street drugs are now have a very high probability of being laced with fentanyl. People get, get, you know, get drugs. It's got fentanyl in it. They get used to taking fentanyl Fentanyl is, you know, a million times stronger than heroin, and it's an infinitely cheaper than than anything. So, once once people and it's, high, it's super highly addictive, obviously. And so, as soon as people get used to taking it, they very very quickly get addicted, and it's so cheap and easy to get. Um, and you know the the difference between a lethal dose and an effective dose is literally the you know the size of a couple grains of salt wow you know that these so it's hard to measure in in yeah extremely hard uh the human eye can't really even decipher the difference between lethal and and effective and you know a lot of these street drugs that are being laced it's not like you know the cartels measuring each individual, you know, amount mm-hmm. that goes into each pill they're pressing, you know, so some have a ton in it, some have a little bit in it. And, uh, you know, you can take one pill, maybe it's a pill of like a fake Percocet that you maybe take, you know, 15, 20 of them a day. Um, and you, what happened to me was I took one of those and, and overdosed on one pill. Wow, when, you know my my own personal tolerance on a on a Percocet is I could easily take you know twenty thirty milligram Percocets a day. That's crazy. I mean, it's really Russian roulette. I mean, it sounds yeah. like uh, these days with fentanyl and drugs, you just um, like you said, one pill can kill you. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, going down to like um, like uh, grains of salt. You know, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that visual, man. It's powerful. It puts things into perspective. I didn't know that, you know? Yeah. What What, what do you feel? Do, so do you feel that uh, you're on borrowed time? Do you feel a gratitude? I mean, obviously you feel saddened by all the losses around you growing up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 
any of my friends that uh, that I know well enough that they they have issues with drugs and alcohol, I uh, all of them are very very aware that I'm sober. They're very yeah. aware that I'm, I'll be the first person to drive their house and take them to a meeting or mm-hmm. do anything. That, that they could ever need if they needed a, a shoulder to, you know, to lean on or if they decided they wanted to make some change. Um, and so it's a lot of them don't talk to me, you know? So over the last, you know, seven years of being sober, it, I have lost contact with a lot of these folks because a, they're not, safe for me to be around like uh you know my my sobriety is uh the most important thing to me and it's it's very fragile even though it's concrete and i'm solid like because of all the death that i've seen and the people in and out um you know in rehab i was in there with like 15 18 people and i think eight of them are already dead you know and within the first year of coming out of of uh, out of rehab, five people had died, you know, that very first year. And so I just, you know, I know how fragile, you know, how fragile it is. And so I have, you know, not remained in contact with a lot of these people unless they're reaching out to me to, you know, to be sober or, uh, you know, I'm, I'll shoot them a note here and there, like, you know, let them know that I'm, I'm thinking about them or, you know, give me a call anytime. But, it's just a, it's a, it's a tough circle to be in once, once you've, you know, once you've gotten sober, especially, you know, not a lot of people, um, they, they look at you and they see, they, they, they immediately don't, you know, they don't, it doesn't feel good to see somebody doing what they wish they could do, but know that yeah. they can't. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so wasn't even your initial question. Your what was your what was your I just went on a tangent there. Um no, I think you answered it. I mean just well just you know kind of how it feels uh to be a father, husband in his uh 40s and um one of the few that are still alive or you know from has, yeah. has a, do you think about that or or no? I mean I mean I mean <laughs> you you have to have moments of gratitude, no? Yeah, so that that's the number one thing is that you know anytime somebody um you know anytime somebody passes away and and a, a very good friend was just mm-hmm. recently in in the last, you know, it's about 6 or 8 weeks. Um it instantly makes me grateful for my sobriety and grateful for my family and it it uh those moments bring very, you know, bring clarity to me about how fragile my sobriety is and how important it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we grow up as men and we always talk about, you know, real man puts his family first and, you know, puts his kids first. And my sobriety has to come first no matter what. Yeah. Of course. So the wheels fall off. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and there is no man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's happened. It happened too many times. Um, you know, I have no con- no control. I have uh, the no ability to to uh, you know to decipher what is probably zero. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I get very grateful. Um, it it gives me a sense of purpose. You know, I always go to the funeral. 
and I always make a real big deal about helping the vocal with the family, whether they want me to, you know, take on the role of, you know, talking about drugs, sobriety, you know, the, the last two friends that died, um, you know, I did the eulogy for one of them, and, you know, I, I was one of two friends that went to go scatter the ashes with the family, you know, of, mm. of the other folks. So, um, you know, close friends, not just acquaintances, but, you know, really, really good friends. And, you know, being almost 45 years old and still losing friends to what seems like something that happens when you're in your, like, early, you know, late teens, early, early 20s, you know, to have fathers in their 40s dying of overdoses is, is, uh, it just, it, it shows you how, you know, how powerful that is. Yeah, we're also at that age where our uh, parents are getting older. Uh, a lot of friends of mine are starting to lose their parents now. You know, we're at that kind of age where, uh, uh, you know, you you calls it the um, the moon or the second part of your life where in the mm-hmm. beginning in our 20s, we feel invincible. I mean, obviously you dealing drugs and being in that um, kind of sexy world. Um, I was not doing any of that stuff. I was, you know, picking my nose and hauling uh, <laughs> over trash cans. But um, yeah, my childhood was very innocent compared to yours. But uh, in our twenties, just feeling invincible and um, lots of testosterone and lots of energy. Mm-hmm. You know, then in our forties, like the moon. You know, if our twenties was the sun, forties uh, the moon, a lot more calm, a lot more wise, and also being having a a, a really face to face experience with death as people around us start to get older, and you know, not yeah. only like with you friends, but also our parents. You know, yeah. Absolutely. You know, my dad died in a car accident when I was 20, 25. He wow. like had some epiphany when we all, all the kids finally moved out of the house and he ended up um, going to live in Mexico and like starting a brand new life and, mm. and you know, snapped on it a little bit. And, uh, you know, soon he was only there for a couple of years, ended up dying in a car crash. And I, I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't talk to my mother. So, I don't have any parents, you know, I'm lucky that I'm married and my, my wife has, you know, multiple step parents and regular parents. So I don't have a lot of parents around me, but my family, it is my friends. And so these people who I've spent so much of my, my time with and shared, you know, deep, dark times with, uh, on top of that, um, seeing them pass and, and, still being this old and constantly having to go through it mm. um it, it also wears you down a little bit you know yeah but also one big thing is i i spent a lot of time posting on social media about fentanyl awareness and mm-hmm. you know people don't want to hear about it you know people yeah. like I, I lose followers every, you know every time <laughs> you do it right and you know Narcan at home, which is the you know the nasal spray to wake somebody up from a from an opiate overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, everyone I tell that if you know everyone on this entire earth should have that on on, mm-hmm. on in their household at least, in especially case. if you have kids yeah. around. And because you know it's not it's not just like drug dealing DJs that are, you know, hooked on, on opiates. I mean, these are right. like soccer moms get, you yeah. know, they, they 
they get hooked on, you know, ox cotton and whatever. And it, it ends up being such a financial burden on them. They all move to fentanyl mm. or they all move to heroin and fentanyl so much cheaper than heroin now. And, yeah. and so much more here that it, it, you know, if the person has that addictive gene and they, they get into trouble with something, it's, it's not going to take much time for them to get to fentanyl and you will die on fentanyl. It's just a matter a matter of time you know it's even do, if or when do you believe um i mean i think i believe it too i know there's a lot of theories on on addiction um i think it was dr drew that I, that i heard when he's talking about the addictive gene and then you know like the addictive gene being kind of the the bullet in the chamber and then the environment is the 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 trigger um do you believe in that so do you believe that you carried that addictive gene from your family tree I mean, I have all yeah, alcohols you know, all around me, so I, I definitely yeah. I feel like it skipped my brother, but I definitely have it. Yeah. So my great grandfather, I guess, was like a super horrible drunk in my entire mm. life. My grandparents would would tell me about the gene and tell me about yeah. how alcoholism you know runs in the family, and it skipped mm -hmm. my dad. My dad didn't really drink at all. Um, but you know, I'm an alcoholic. My little brother's an alcoholic. My mm. brother's an alcoholic. I, I definitely believe that you can have a, a genetic predisposition mm. um, and then obviously I think your your environment and the way that you grow up is uh, you know coping mechanisms how quickly you learn to you know for me it's all about like anxiety I just I, I don't like the way I feel you know right. I don't feel comfortable anywhere I don't feel comfortable doing anything with anybody at any given time and <laughs> like right now you know, uh, right now you know and alcohol made you know, infinitely easier for me it yeah. just ma made me yeah. more comfortable i got to get out of my shell and and i think it's just that you know that feeling of of not wanting to feel the way that you're feeling and being and yeah. knowing that something so simple as taking a drink or popping a pill can instantly change it and make it better sure Sure. I think for me, it would be food and sex, um, a way of, um, you know, numbing, escaping. I mean, also the thing about alcohol, food and sex is that they're not, they, they're, they're not, um, they just seem like normal everyday things, you know? So, yeah. um, having a, you know, a glass of wine with your meal, I mean, we're sexual beings, so sex is not a bad thing, food. Um, but I think if, uh, you are abusing them, if you are, um, using them to numb, to hide, to not, you know, sit with their feelings or whatever, then of course they yeah. can also all be a drug as well. Um, so once you, once you became sober, uh, then you started or you were part of a, a tech company, correct? Yeah, we, we, uh, it was actually before I got sober that we started, mm -hmm. started the company. We built this, uh, sound software company together. And I remember you saying like, you know, working, um, you know, on top, just with top ramen and long hours and, you know, yeah. underneath. that's like the picture you painted me. Yeah. So we, we, um, we had a, a, we were sharing an office with another company that the original founders had started. And then, um, myself and two other guys had, we, we built a sales office in my buddy's garage. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I was the, you know, the second employee and, um, 
we we all lived in the house and we worked in the garage and we all shared money um we'd all pull our money together and whoever mm. had money would pay for food or you know whatever it was and and we built we built that company up to you know almost 300 employees or maybe wow. a little over 300 employees and ended up selling it for you know 148 million dollars and and that was was that you know, was that, that was, the first uh, uh quote unquote um successful thing in your life uh, as well, far as on paper yeah uh yes it was but yeah. and also it most certainly was um during that time when uh that was my new hustle you know yeah. i spent my entire life flipping shit you know buy you know i'd get something and i would sell it for more and right whether it was taking a, a legal job or illegal or whatever it was i i just learned that I could make as much money as I wanted flipping stuff. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I very much like dealing with people and talking to, to people and, and helping them find the answer to whatever problem it was that they were, mm -hmm. you know, looking to solve. And when I, I, um, man, I can tell you. So the organization I worked for when, I was selling drugs. We, um, it, it got busted mm. and there was this situation where I didn't stick around and go into court and testify against some people um, or I could leave. So I went to Europe for a few months mm. to dodge having to, to deal with this, this, be a part of this this court situation and when i had this like epiphany while i was out there that you know this isn't what i should be doing and i you know i made it this far without you know going to jail or, or getting seriously hurt that when i come back i'm gonna change my entire life mm -hmm. and so when i came back i ended up running Meeting these people randomly at a bar in Mexico. I was down there on a surf trip with some friends, and we ran into some people, and they were really cool. And they invited us back to the house that they were renting, and we partied with them. And then we got their phone number, called them. You know, a week later, they were from Rancho Cucamonga, and one of those guys was one of the founders of this company. He said, "You know, if you're looking for something." new to do you know come come work with me and we'll do this and so on so i, I went and, and worked with him we built that company um and sold it and then during that time i also started doing these spin-offs you know anytime i saw an opportunity where i might be able to make a, some money and such um i would i would start a little business or um you know i, I bought and flipped the house um you know well into you know some time when i'd fixed my credit score and started making money selling software and uh, just kind of you know kind of did that and then i met my wife you know you know what's interesting about that part of the story um which i think is just life is like um you going to, to europe for a few months to get away from you know the 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 shady shit or whatever the the court stuff 
and then in Europe, you might you meet someone through something very casual, and then you guys end up doing this thing, and it's like that's just how yeah. you know. There's there's serendipity there, right? There's uh, it is colliding with it just is. someone that came out of nowhere, and then that turns into a huge part of your life. And then for the next fifteen years, you guys are working together. Eventually, you sell the company. Um, that's a big chapter of your life that came out of you going to yeah. Europe to just kind of get away. Yeah, there, there. You know, I I think about it all the time. My my wife and I actually grew up both grew up in Huntington Beach, and right. um, I I knew her. She was a friend of my little sisters from church when I when I was in high school, but we didn't like connect until we were both living in LA and we like ran mm-hmm. into each other, you know, in front of a, a bar one like Wednesday night at two o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning. And if I hadn't have decided to go out drinking that Wednesday, right, I, right. I wouldn't have ran into her and, you know, who knows what my life would, would look like right now. So I, I, it's interesting that every decision you make has all these, all these, these different, you know, consequences, whether they're, they're good or bad that you may not know for years how much of this do you think is meant like you were meant to be outside that bar on a Wednesday at 2, 2 a.m. or you were meant to go to Europe to meet this? Like how much yeah, of it do you think like, is, is bigger than I don't think you? any of it's meant. I think that I think if I just, if I had made the decision to change my life for the better, that better things would start happening. Mm myself in a position that when an opportunity arose you know i would be able to take advantage of it because mm-hmm. I, you know was doing all the you know the right things that opportunity presented itself and so you know if i hadn't gone out drinking you know maybe i would have ended up somehow running into her again at some other mm-hmm particular you know event or maybe i would have ran into somebody just like her that i got along well with and and would have married that person and had kids and it's it's hard to it's hard to say if um but the fact that i i knew her from back in the day and then we ran into each other up here and it just so happened to be in a yeah time when we both uh you know we're ready to have a relationship and such. Like there's just so many things that had to line up for that to protect that work for that to work, you know? So, I so know. these days now you are, um, obviously you're sober. You have two daughters, beautiful daughters. And, uh, you know, you're, you're the family man slash entrepreneur. Um, and you get out, you know, you go surfing and do other things that I think are, are great. Uh, the other thing we have in common is motorcycles. Um, sure. it seems like the love of your life, uh, because like the entrepreneurial, the, the, the hustler, the business guy, that's ingrained. And, and I could, I could sense yeah. that that's not going anywhere, right? It's who you are. It's, it's a fiber of you. Um, yeah. but, but fatherhood, it seems like, yeah. um, just watching from a distance, that's kind of your new love is, uh, you really love being it's a father. All, no? It's, it's all like that. Yeah. Mm. Tell me why, there's, tell me what, what is it about fatherhood that there's, there's like, Once, once you have a child, thinking back to my childhood, mm-hmm. like as a parent, leaving my child, giving my child up, not doing anything and everything that I could to fight to be in this this child's life, it just doesn't. Yeah. 
I, I have such a hard time comprehending and, you know, even coming from somebody who's had serious, you know, drug problems and alcoholism, like I can see how things in your life can get unhinged and, and the opportunity to be a great parent may, may not, you know, be at your fingertips, but mm-hmm. the, the like love I from my kids would only be, you know, only a parent knows, right? People say people right. say that all the time, but like, yeah. you know, when I got my first dog that was like my dog, I couldn't explain to anybody the love that I had for this dog. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then when I had a kid, I was like, "Fuck this dog!" You know, like this dog, <laughs> right. like, this dog meant this nothing. This dog bites to me. my kid. The right? dog, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And so you know, there, there, there's that. And then it's uh, so much severe trauma in my life the the opportunity to to raise girls you yeah. know boys boys are hard to raise extremely hard to raise you know creating a man or helping a boy become a man is, is a really tough job but rate raising women i've met so many women that have you know issues with their parents and mm-hmm. being able to 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 raise women in this environment from the the history and point of view that that i have is like Mm -hmm. such a special gift to me you know Mm. and the it's like i get i get to do all of the the like joyful childhood things all over again but i get to to do it through you know through my eyes yeah yeah and, and provide them you know a safe environment to, you know, to, to thrive in. And it's like, I, it's, it's the only thing that matters in my, in my entire life is to make sure that, you know, I, I do a good job with, with this, you know, nothing else matters. You know, when a few years ago, parents were being uh, separated from their children at the border. Um, This was before I had Logan, but now as a father, Dude, I can't imagine like my daughter being pried out of my hands with me having no control, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, maybe even at gunpoint and there, and then she's gone. And then the, the yeah. me, I, I mean, how do you survive something like that? Right. And I, I guess, I, I mean, mean, you're right. You don't know. You can only imagine. You don't really know until you're a parent, until you hold your, you know, child in your arms or, you know, the, the collective day to day of um, doing life with them. You know, that creates yeah. that kind of that kind of bond. But you know, but not everyone, um, including dads, um, gravitated uh, 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 like you did. So there's something in it for you. And I think you're 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 telling us this now is that uh you almost get to relive life um through fresh eyes and you get to break the pattern of generational trauma and yeah, you could provide um a different life for uh, your daughters than you know that that you could give them different cards than you were dealt. You know? Yeah. The other thing is is that um, I had never dated a woman that I said to myself like I'd have kids with this person, mm. like mm-hmm. none of them. And when I met, what was my it wife, about Janine that you said okay I'll have I'll have kids with this person? What was it about her that was different? I mean. So, you know, Janine, so this yeah. is, you know, for, she, she's just 
so solid, you know, mm. her, her constitution cannot be compromised. And mm. the like love and truth and honesty that she just exudes is like makes me know that that it's safe like there's nothing i can't say to her there's mm -hmm. no like amount of you know vulnerable moment that she'll like ever use against me um you know she's she doesn't say mean things that are like malicious on purpose to me like everything about her is that she's just a super good solid person mm -hmm. and uh, she never did drugs, so I knew that like, health-wise, she's in great shape. She she's mm -hmm. always, um, you know, she's really taking care of herself. And and because um, I've dated a lot of girls that, that haven't taken care of themselves, sure. and I would be worried that when if they had gotten pregnant, what they'd be putting into their bodies and such. So there was there was that. Um, the other thing is like we we just saw eye to eye on the stuff that that we felt were important, important yeah right like we don't argue about money we don't argue about how we want to raise our kids you know we mm -hmm. from you know all, all of the, the the points that that mean the most for, for partnership as kids like we, we see on those things i've just I haven't met anybody else that i was on this that much of the same page, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also there's a different type of layer of attraction when the person is the mother of your children or child. Yeah. Then, um, and, and you guys could be married too, but like once uh, there's a family, once you have your own family, it's just the way that you look at each other is different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're truly related now. You know, which yeah. sounds weird to say, but like you're, yeah. you're, you're related, whether you're married or together with that person, it, like, it doesn't matter when you, when you create a child with somebody, you're going to be tied to that person for the rest of your life. So, yeah. you know, if you have the good fortune of being able to make that decision on purpose and together to have a child and, and go at it together instead of, you know, on the off chance that you perhaps not somebody pregnant, you weren't planning on it and you know, you don't see eye to eye. If you, I mean, Janine and I only dated a year before I asked her to marry me. Like mm -hmm. I, I just, I just knew instantly that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. So I was super lucky in, in, and in instantly is not, you know, nine months, 10 months. Let me, let me ask you this. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think 10, 10 months is still a very short amount of time. Yeah. You know, I can, I it depends that. on the individual. Um, how do you now today as a father, family man, uh, sober and entrepreneur and, you know, how busy you are and stuff, how do you um, deal with anxiety? Because anxiety is going to be there for the rest of your life, right? So yeah. how, do you how do you cope with it now in, in more of a healthy way? I mean, obviously surfing is one, right? Yeah. Yeah, so exercise is, uh, I've tried every drug on the planet to get rid of anxiety. And yeah. The only thing that really worked for me um, was exercise. Everything else, the downside of is, is far too great. 
and um, I don't take any SSRIs uh, or anything mm-hmm. anymore. I, I did for 30 years. I, you know, I, I've tried everything under the sun and been fairly heavy medicated on for anxiety and depression a portion of my life. But uh, exercise is that does it does it the most. And then yeah. there's a lot of my comes into hand, like you know, med- meditation in the morning, like mm-hmm. breathing techniques, and um, constantly, you know, making time to be grateful for, you know, for the things that I'm, I'm blessed for. A lot of it is just taking the time to like calm down, to realize yeah. that you know the situation I'm in isn't forever, and, um, and then I take some like functional mushrooms and and some other, you know, just basic supplements and stuff that that help with that. But um, uh, nothing works awesome, you know. Yeah, you got to kind of find exercise your own. works the best, but you know, yeah, it's it's a constant. It's still a constant problem. Not not nearly as bad as it used to be. Um, you know, when I first got sober, I had a really super hard time being in crowded places and being mm-hmm. around a bunch of people, and yeah, um, would have anxiety attacks pretty often. Wow, and. Uh, it, it got a little, it just got better and better over time. And, uh, once I just became more comfortable in my own skin and, uh, you know, the longest from the time I was probably 15, the, I had never gone more than like a week or two sober, you know, yeah. until I went to rehab. So, um, I never gave myself enough of a chance to get, used to feeling this way you know i was always trying to to mask it with something so you know i had to get to i had to get comfortable with it first and then kind of gauge the ups and downs with it yeah well listen man um i use my podcast as a kind of a time capsule um so when when i pass you know i have all these um, conversations with um, all different, you know, people. Most of the podcasts is uh, me talking to myself, but um, I'm glad that you're on here. One of the reasons I wanted you to be on here is so we could uh, just capture a conversation, you know, and yeah. and, and have it as a time capsule. Um, I also awesome. interviewed, yeah, I also interviewed your wife, and uh, you know, as you get older and, and you have kids and you're busy, it's really hard to make friends as adults. So um, I'm glad that we we get the chance to hang out and do stuff. So. Um, it's been, it's Me been too. really cool getting to know you and your family and I hope, uh, we continue. Um, and yeah, dude, you have a, a an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, and thanks for being yeah. on my podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, man. It's always great to see you. Um, I'll be, I'll be seeing you soon. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Matt. Be well. All right, brother. Bye. See ya.